Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the podcast with absolutely no artificial sweeteners. I'm your host, Kyle. This is episode 22. This is just going to be a normal episode with all the normal stuff, which I guess we're going to get to. Um, Announcement-wise, I just have the same to say as last episode, that this after this one, there's going to be a little bit of a break while I'm traveling, and then there's going to be a Halloween episode a few days before Halloween, and then the week or two weeks after that, there's going to be another normal episode again, and we'll be back on regular schedule until around Christmas times winter times. So that is all on the radar, so let's get down to this episode. Let's just get with it. And as usual, we're going to be starting with the Monster of the Week. This episode, our Monster of the Week, comes from Iberian folklore. Iberia is Spain and Portugal, that area. And this monster is the Santa Compania, which means Holy Company. The Santa Campania appears as this procession of these spectral ghostly figures. I mean, they're ghosts. They're dead. And they appear as these spectral figures wearing these hooded white robes. Sort of like KKK robes, I guess, but instead of being racist assholes, they're just ghost spirits. And they are evil spirits, so maybe, maybe they are racist ghosts? Maybe they're bad? I don't know. There's there's a lot of open to interpretationness with ghosts and the, what they what they do. Anyway, they appear as this procession of these ghostly figures. They start walking around at midnight at nighttime through the towns and villages, but the procession is led by a living human, and they usually select parishioners of churches who will carry like a cross or a cauldron of holy water while they're leading this procession around. And the person, the human who leads them, isn't aware of it. They're sort of possessed or cursed to lead the procession. And over time, they get sicker and sicker until eventually they die. And then the Santa Campania chooses a new host to lead them around. And what they do while they're walking around is they'll visit the homes that have death around them. So where someone's going to die. So sort of foretell that. It's like a warning system. And then at daybreak, they, they disappear person's lifted from the curse they go back to their house and don't remember anything that went down just wake up like normal although not super normal because they feel tired as shit because they didn't sleep all night but normal enough now the curse can be lifted if someone takes the cross or the cauldron that the leader is carrying and then they become the leader so it's not really a great solution because you break the one person's curse but then you get cursed so it's not super ideal. And you can't always see the uh, the procession Santa Campania marchers anyway. Sometimes you just see the parishioner or leader walking around. But uh, apparently it said that because the ghostly figures will carry these lighted candles as they're walking, that you can smell a little bit of the wax sometimes as they're passing by. And if you see them coming towards you to avoid their sort of evil influence, you need to draw the special seal on the grounds. You need to draw the Seal of Solomon, which is a six-pointed star, and if you stand inside of that, then that will protect you from the Santa Campania's bad, bad effects. There's also a few hand signals, like special warding hands movements you can do to keep them away. So if you see them, you're not completely boned. There are, there are ways to get out of the, uh, the curse. Once you have it, though, like you're in deep shit because... Every day, every morning you wake up and you don't remember leading the procession around, so you don't know you're cursed. 
you just feel super tired, like you didn't get any sleep, and you get weaker and weaker, and then you die, which is not really a good life goal to go towards. And if no one takes the, the stuff from you, the cross or the cauldron, then you're just stuck with it. So it's not the best dealio to have. Still, a very interesting folklore entity. I mean, I say that about every goddamn one. I'm not going to pick, like, Bury the Brick for my, my monster of the week. It's going to be something cool. Although Bury the Brick has some nice qualities to him. But these processional-type entities, these sort of spectral ones, show up in multiple cultures, as a lot of things do. For example, the Wild Hunt from Germanic folklore is sort of the same thing. That's going through the sky, it's this big hunting party. Or in Hawaiian folklore, the Night Marchers, which are the ghosts of dead warriors, is all kind of similar to the Santa Campania. Although I think the Santa Campania is probably the creepiest one out of all of them. Maybe it's something to do with the candles and the robes. Like, you can't trust a person wearing robes. Nine times out of ten, if they've got robes, they're, they're a bad, bad dude. The other one out of ten is just, like, Gandalf. Like, Gandalf, he's pretty cool. But everyone else in robes are creepy and evil. Probably. Especially the Santa Campania. So there's your life tip. If you're in Spain or Portugal and you're wandering around at night and you see this ghostly, nightmarish thing coming towards you, do, do what I said to get rid of it, because ghosts are no good, usually. But enough about ghosts and spirits and processions, we're going to move on to our stories now. And first up, we've got a Hawaiian folk story called Battle of the Owls. There lived a man named Kapoi at Kahehuena in Honolulu, who went one day to Kualo to get some thatching for his house. On his way back, he found some owl's eggs, which he gathered together and brought home with them. In the evening, he wrapped them in tea leaves and was about to roast them in hot ashes when an owl perched on the fence which surrounded his house and called out to him, Oh Kapoi, give me my eggs. Kapoi asked the owl, How many eggs had you? Seven eggs, replied the owl. Kapoi then said, Well, I wish to roast these eggs for my supper. The owl asked the second time for its eggs, and was answered by Kapoi in the same manner. Then said the owl, Oh, heartless Kapoi, why don't you take pity on me? Give me my eggs. Kapoi then told the owl to come and take them. The owl, having got the eggs, told Kapoi to build a hayu, or temple, and instructed him to make an altar and call the temple by the name of Manua. Kapoi built the temple as directed, set Kapu days for its dedication, and place the customary sacrifice on the altar. News spread to the hearing of Kakuihuea, who was then king of Oahu, living at the time at Waikiki, that a certain man had kapu'd several days for his hayu, and had already dedicated it. The king had made a law that whoever among his people should erect a hawaiu and kapu the same before the king had had his temple kapu'd, that man should pay the penalty of death. Kapoi was thereupon seized by the king's orders and led to the hayo of Kupalaha at Waikiki. That same day, the owl that had told Kapoi to erect a temple gathered all the owls from Lanai, Maui, Molokai, and Hawaii to one place at Kalapueo. All those from the Kulau districts were assembled at Kananakapueo, and those from Kauai and Nihau at Poyahulunui near Mauna Loa. 
It was decided by the king that Kapoi should be put to death on the day of Kane. When that day came, at daybreak the owls left their places of rendezvous and covered the whole sky over Honolulu, and as the king's servant seized Kapoi to put him to death, the owls flew at them, pecking them with their beaks and scratching them with their claws. Then and there was fought the battle between Kakahoe's people and the owls. At last the owls conquered, and Kapoi was released, the king acknowledging that his Akua was a powerful one. From that time, the owl has been recognized as one of the many deities venerated by the Hawaiian people. The End Okay, first things first, before I do anything else, if any Hawaiians are listening, I just want to apologize for butchering your language, because, my god, that was a tongue twister for me. That was a struggle. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I always annihilate the pronunciations of any language, even my own language, English. I mess that up, but this was on another level for all that. So I am very sorry for that. But hopefully the general ideas got through? Maybe? We'll see. Um, anyway, moving on. I probably have some word definitions because a lot of those are in Hawaiian. And if you don't speak that language, then you have no idea what the hell those are. You can probably still get the general story idea, but it would be better to clarify some of these, so let's start. A lot of these words are just place names, which I don't think need any explanation because it's where something is. Uh, it doesn't really translate. But, for example, they talk about building Hiao. It's H-E-I-A-U, and that means temple, so... I think I said that in the story, that those are the temples that they're building for various gods or deities. It mentions also Kapoi setting Kapu days for his Hayao, and Kapu is sort of a legal system, but also covers lifestyle and religion, and the main w translation is taboo or forbidden. It can also translate to holy, so I think in this case it's sort of setting holy or ritual days in this context. I could be wrong uh, if I am. Again, I'm sorry, but I think that's what it is. He's creating this temple to this owl deity and then setting special holy ritual days to go along with these religious practices. And of course, this pisses off the king because he set a law that people can't set up their temples before the king sets up his own. And Kapoi did this, so that's why the king wants to execute him, which is sort of a dick move. But, well, you know, the king gets what's coming to him for that. And then finally, it mentions the day of Kane, or Kane. Again, not sure how to pronounce that properly. But that's when the moon is 27 days old, so that's going off the lunar calendar. And then Akua means God. So when the king acknowledges that Kapoi's Akua was a powerful one, the king's like, shit, yeah, your owl god is really strong, not gonna mess with him. And then Kapoi gets to live happily ever after, and owls went into the Hawaiian worship and celebration. Which is a nice segue to the topic of owls. They don't just bring letters from Hogwarts, they do other things too. So in Hawaii, the species of owl there is the pueo, as it's called now. And as it was called back then, I assume, it, it's the same name. But the pueo owl is a pretty cool one because it nests on the ground, which not many owls do. In fact, I'm not sure if any other owls nest on the ground, so it's a pretty cool fact right there. And of course, as this story implies, the Pueo were very worshipped by the Hawaiians. They were an important religious figure, a deity. In a lot of traditions, they were considered to be one of the more popular or iconic forms in which ancestor spirits could return. 
So another reason you want to venerate something is if there's a chance that's not just an actual owl, but it's an ancestor spirit, you don't want to fuck with that because you don't actually know. Like imagine if you throw a rock at an owl, but guess what? Psych, that's not an owl, that's grandpa, and he is pissed. That's no good, you don't want that. So you want to respect the owls and venerate them because, again, you don't know if they're actually owls. What makes this story really interesting is that it's not an origin story for a deity, it's an origin story for why people started to worship a deity. Like, it's not like, oh yeah, then this deity emerged from so-and-so. It's, no, these owls were chilling around, and then people finally started worshipping them because of these reasons. It's like the story came around because people were venerating owls, then one person was like, hold up, why the shit are we giving these owls so much good treatment? And then the story came around to explain why you want to respect the owls. Which I just want to say, I am 100% down with. Owls are super awesome, so be nice to owls, people. That's just quality life advice for anyone. This story also really highlights one of the things that makes polytheism so interesting, which is when polytheistic cultures and religions encounter new deities or new religions, they treat them as a separate one, like they still exist as part of this universal worldview. For example, in the New World, when the Aztecs encountered the Spanish and they started exchanging religious ideas, or even and even all over the New World, with a bunch of Native American groups, Native Americans didn't see it as an either-or thing. They saw they had their gods, and the Europeans had their god over there. And for example, with the Aztecs, after they were conquered, a lot of Aztecs converted really quickly, because there's sort of this idea that if they were conquered, that means that their conqueror's god must have been, must have been more powerful than their gods, and defeated their gods in battle too. And we see the same sort of idea here, where the owl gods are so powerful that the guy who worships the owl gods, you don't want to mess with them because his gods are as strong as or potentially stronger than our gods, and we don't want a full-on god fight. We want to keep it civil. So overall, really fun story here. I 100% just picked it out because I saw owls in the title, not going to lie. But now I'm going to move on to our next story. And this is an Ethiopian story called The Cunning Fox. Once upon a time, there's an ostrich who had a cow, and a lion who had a bull. And the lion said to the ostrich, Why don't we take our cow and bull grazing together? So instead of both of us being herdsmen, one day you can take care of them, and one day I will. So they continued living in their happy way for a couple of months, and the cow became pregnant. Then one day, when the cow was about to deliver, the lion noticed, and he said, it's okay, ostrich, you can rest. I'll go and look after the cow and the bull today. Then the cow gave birth. The lion said, Look, your cow gave birth to a big grindstone, and my bull gave birth to a calf. And the ostrich said, This is ridiculous. The lion said, It's not. Said a big quarrel, and decided to call all the animals and make them decide. So, a big gathering was called. But none of the animals dared to say the lion's bull could not give birth. So one cunning fox said, I won't come to the gathering, but as I go rushing by, you can ask me to pronounce the judgment. So, as he went running by, everyone in the gathering said, Mr. Fox, Mr. Fox, can you please come down? And he said, No, I'm in a hurry. I'm carrying a knife because my father is in labor. And besides, the sun's setting, and it's about to rain, so I've got to run and help them deliver my father, who is in labor. The lion said, 
What rubbish. How can your father be in labor? Isn't he a male? And the fox said, So you'd like me to tell you some other rubbish? That a bull gave birth to a calf? And he ran away. The angry lion ran after him, and the ostrich was left with the cow and the calf. The End this story seems like pretty standard animal shenanigans, shenanigans, you know what I mean. It's animals doing crazy shit, which is a lot of these folk stories. As usual, or at least pretty frequent, the fox is a clever animal, it's smart, it does the tricky shit, which is like we've talked about before because actual foxes are pretty smart, so that people adapts that to folklore. What really stands out to me about the story is the difference. It sort of contrasts with the previous one we had, that Siberian one called How the Sun Was Rescued. If you remember, we also had a big gathering of all the animals. But the difference, which I think is sort of funny, is in this one, everyone's afraid to shit-talk the lion because he'll eat them. But in that one, everyone is totally fine with shit-talking the bear and the wolf. So just a funny little story difference between those two. It's also interesting how the lion is portrayed in this story, because normally you think of lions as the strong, majestic, or powerful brute force ones, but in this story he's just like a sneaky backstabbing bastard. This is like hyena level behavior. Maybe it's three hyenas in a lion suit. Probably not, but it could be. Either way, this one is pretty standard with the fox using brain smarts to outwit a stronger enemy which is a lot of these stories that we see have the same sort of trends. So really, not too much to say about this one, uh, that, doesn't, that it doesn't say for itself. Not too much for me to add on. Unless I'm just missing some, some major shit, which I haven't thought about. But I don't think I am. So I think we're just going to go to the end of the episode now. I'm gonna call it a wrap, gonna tidy this up. So, once again, as always, thank you so much for listening to Folklore of the Universe. Uh, the next episode will be out a little bit before Halloween. That'll be the Halloween special. Then we'll have normal episodes after that. Uh, the next one after that will probably have sort of a uh, Turkish theme to it, because I'm going to be going to Turkey for the next few weeks, which is why the episode schedule is all wonky. So we'll see about that. And yeah, so as always, please share this around with all your friends and family and whatnot. Get the word out there on the street, on the biz. I've been Kyle. This has been The Show. And thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.